The following audio is from a sermon series entitled, The Revelation of Jesus Christ. For more information about Sacred City Church, please visit sacredcitychurch.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Revelation chapter 4. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were twenty-four thrones, and seated on the thrones were twenty-four elders clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning, and rumblings, and peals of thunder, And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second like a creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, my name is Justin, if, if you are new here, and I am uh, the pa- one of the pastors here. I planted Sacred City Church, oh, I don't know, six and a half years ago, something like that. And uh, I'm glad you're here worshiping with us this morning. We are working through the book of Revelation. Um, How many of you are excited to to see what I have to say about this today? (laughs) You need to read ahead, because if you read ahead, you're going to come excited, right? My wife's like, well, what what are you going to talk about? And I go, just read the chapter. I get a text. She's like, oh, wow. I'm like, exactly. That's why I was struggling this week, okay? Uh, But I'm excited to, to open up the Bible this morning. If you are new at Sacred City, we just work verse by verse through books of the Bible, And since we started Sacred City Church, people have been daring me to preach through the book of Revelation. And I put it off and put it off and put it off. And finally, I said, you know, I felt like led to let's work through the book of Revelation. And one of the problems you have when you read Revelation, if you you don't know, is you lose sight of the forest because of the trees, right? And this morning is a prime example that we have that opportunity, you, ha- you saw all those weird animals, those things with faces and eyes all over, and you could be going, what's, what's up with the eyes? But that's losing sight of the forest for the trees. So I'm going to zoom out a little bit. We're going to talk about this. I think God's going to have something good for us to say this morning. But before we do, let me pray, and then let's get to work. Father, uh, we thank you that you promised to meet us here. You promised to meet us here because two or three are gathered in your name. Your word is being read aloud as you commanded us to do. Um, You promised a blessing upon the reading aloud of your scripture, uh, specifically of the book of Revelation, so we read it aloud this morning. And Father, where people hear your word, your spirit is here at work, doing work in people's hearts, and so we ask that you would bring glory to yourself this morning, that you would think through my mind, that you would speak through my vocal cords, that it would be all of you and none of me. I am foolish, I am sinful, I have my own faults and proclivities, and I ask that you would hide me behind the word of God this morning and you would declare your truth through me so that your people could be freed, your people could experience the freedom that they have in Christ, and they could experience you in a new and fresh way. I pray that you would do all this for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen. So we are in Revelation chapter 4. If you're just joining us, we are four weeks into a five-month-long study through the book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible. Now, this book is meant to be a touchstone for us. 
It's a book that is meant to pull back the curtains of reality and open us up to that which we were made for. And I'm just gonna let you know, a lot of times I'm slow, I'm slow, I'm slow to warm up. I'm not gonna be slow to warm up this morning. Okay, so this is the, the train's gonna be going by, and I'm just gonna say jump and hold on, okay? We're gonna we might get some whiplash, but that's where we're going this morning. Okay? Do you know what you were made for? I'm gonna to cut to the chase this morning. You were made for God. You were made for heaven. You were created to behold the one who is seated on the throne of the universe. Is it any wonder, wonder why you are so frustrated with much of your life right now? How often do you think, really? Really? Is this all that there is? What is wrong with me? Why can I only be happy or satisfied for a few fleeting moments? I know I have those thoughts often. So much of life is monotonous. Let's see if you relate to this at all. Alarm clock, wake up, snooze, wake up again, find some coffee, make some breakfast, Get the kids ready for school. Get yourself ready for the work, ready for work or ready for the day. Rush, rush, rush. Hurry up. Get everyone loaded in the car. Commute to school or work. Work all day long in a job that you thought would be far more meaningful and rewarding than it actually is on a day-to-day -day basis. Come home from work. Pick up the kids. Have dinner. Make dinner, have dinner, clean up dinner, work on homework, do laundry, get kids to practices. Then hell begins. It's called the bedtime ritual, the bedtime routine, right? Rush, rush, rush again, hurry up, get jammies on, get a bedtime snack, get their teeth brushed, read a book, say their prayers, threaten a spanking if they get out of bed, then crash on the couch for a few glorious minutes to think about how you should have worked out today. You should have went to the grocery store and you should have read your Porterbrook assignments before going to bed and doing the thing all over again tomorrow. If you remember from last spring, we spent a few months studying the book of Ecclesiastes the constant refrain of that book was everything under the sun is vanity of vanities. All is vanity. The word vanity there means breath or vapor. When you go out this morning, you breathe out, you see it, you see your breath, and then it's gone. And then you see your breath, and then it's gone. You see your breath, and it's gone. It's monotonous. It's wispy and thin. You can't grasp it or keep it. Solomon's saying, it's here now and gone in a moment. Solomon, again, was one of the richest and wisest men to have ever lived. And he wrote this book and he used this phrase, under the sun, 29 times to signify life on this earth, life on this spinning rock. Life under the sun without God is meaningless. It's monotonous. It's vanity of vanity. But here's what's so fascinating about our text this morning. As I said before, it's meant to be a touchstone for us. It's meant to be like Frodo's ring in Lord of the Rings. That every time he put it on, he would be taken into another dimension of reality. He was still present where he was physically, but he could now see in the spirit realm. He could see the Nazgul and he could see the ring rates in the spirit world. Look how our text begins today. Chapter four, verse one. After this, I looked and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, that's the voice of Jesus, the resurrected glorified Jesus from chapter one, two. The first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, come up here. 
and I will show you what must take place after this. Here the apostle John sees a door that is open in heaven. My throat is a little scratchy this morning, forgive me. Then he hears the glorified Jesus say, come up here. Jesus here is giving John a glimpse of that which what Solomon didn't have. See, Solomon's refrain was under the sun, under the sun, under the sun. John hears Jesus say, come up here. John gets a glimpse of what's beyond the sun. Jesus is inviting John into heaven to see ultimate reality. John is being invited to step out of the monotony of his day-to-day life and discover that which he was made for. This reminds me of the movie The Matrix. Neo has been living a monotonous life of a corporate computer programmer with a little hacking on the side when he's confronted by the rebel leader Morpheus and he's given a revelation and a choice. The revelation was that his life was actually just a simulation in a computer-generated video game. His real life was somewhere else, quote, in the real world. And then the choice he was given was between the red pill and the blue pill. Morpheus says, quote, you can take the blue pill, the story ends. You wake up in your bed and you believe whatever you want to believe. You can take the red pill, you stay in wonderland. And I will show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. Remember, all I'm offering is the truth, nothing more. Neo takes the red pill and wakes up in the real world. That's what's happening to John here. That's the doorway to heaven. You step through that door and nothing will ever be the same again. You are about to enter into the heart of the universe. You are about to get a glimpse of ultimate reality. And John, thankfully, does it. He steps through the door and the text says, at once, I was in the spirit. To mix my metaphors this morning, John just took the red pill and put the ring of power on his finger. Okay, (laughs) He is now in the spirit. He's in the spirit. He is seeing into the real world. He is literally in heaven, in eternity. Now, I'm just going to tell you, this is going to cook our noodle just a little bit. We, like Neo, have been born into this system. All we've really known is life under the sun. We think it's the only real world because it's the real world that we can see and feel and taste and hear, and it is truly real. This isn't philosophy 101, right? How do you know you exist? Right? This isn't that. It is really real. But it is not, because it's not eternal, it's not eternally real. It's not ultimately real in its current state. Now, here we go. Think about this. Before God created anything physical, he existed alone. Genesis 1 starts, in the beginning, God. Okay? God himself is a Trinitarian spirit. That means he exists in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all of them eternally present to one another. Jesus was never, quote, created, okay? The Spirit never, there was never a time when the Father existed without the Son or without the Spirit. They all exist together. At this time, I would like to, I almost said, open up your Bibles to before chapter Genesis 1 because that's where we're going right now, okay? Before Genesis 1, God existed, Nothing physical existed as we know it, just spirit. Then God creates other spirits. Thousands upon thousands of spirits that exist in some kind of hierarchy. 
If you read the Bible, you learn that there's some kind of hierarchy within the spiritual world. The Old Testament goes as far as calling some of these spirits gods. Elohim. In Psalm 82, I'm going to read that. We have it up on the screen, I think. Psalm 82. This is a, you probably skipped over this. You probably read it sometime in your Bible reading plan and just skip it over because it doesn't really make much practical sense to you. But here's what it says. Psalm of Asaph. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. Before God created the earth and everything in it, he created heaven and the heavenly hosts of spiritual beings, okay? Somewhere along the way, there was a rebellion in heaven and some of these angels or gods or spiritual beings tried to take God's place in the divine council. God doesn't need a council. God invites people into his story. And so he invites rulers into his council, much like a king would have his court. But there, of course, is no God like Yahweh, like the real God. So when they rebelled against him, he overthrew them all. And these cursed gods and spiritual creatures eventually led Adam and Eve to sin. And then they began to malign all that God has created. And then now they constantly tempt God's people to turn away from their creator and to worship other gods. If you get into this, it's a very fascinating to study, to start studying these kind of spiritual rulers. You got places in, I think it's Daniel, where this angel shows up to Daniel and he's like, I'm sorry, I was late. I was fighting with this other spiritual ruler. You're like, what? Yeah, I was sorry. It was, you know, spiritual battle. We were going hard. Like, what? It's crazy. Now, I know this seems like science fiction. I know this seems so hard to believe. But can I just ask you, why do you think it's so hard to be honest, to be true, to be pure? <laughs> don't, don't these things like simple things? You look at it and you're like, my life would be so much better if I just told the truth all the time. So hard to hold all my lies <laughs> in tension, right? If I could just be pure and just love one woman or just love one man, my, my heart, everything would be so much better, right? We are literally in a spiritual war and there are spiritual evils set against us. Psalm 82 goes on like this. How long will you judge unjustly? This is God speaking to the uh, fallen gods, okay? The evil spiritual rulers over kingdoms and lands. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. This is God looking at the world and the nations of the world and saying they're being influenced by spiritual evil. There is literally spiritually rulers over these nations that are making them do some of these evil, wicked things. Now look, verse six, I said, you are gods, sons of the most high, all of you, nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. And then Asaph says, arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit the nation. Psalm 82 here is pronouncing a greater judgment upon these lesser gods for their rebellion. So this is what I want you to see. Before the earth existed, the spiritual world existed. God, spirits, heaven. And in this spiritual world, <laughs> there are all kinds of spiritual creatures. Throughout scripture, we are told of gods, spirits, angels, archangels or archangels, seraphs, seraphim, the devil, demons, rulers, authorities, Cosmic powers over this present darkness, 
spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And in verses six and seven, we are introduced to some of these spiritual animals that sound like they're right out of Harry Potter or Lord of the Rings. All of this is going on in the spiritual world, the unseen realm. And one of the most fascinating things about the book of Revelation is that God is showing us that in the end, he is going to merge heaven and earth. He is going to bring together his heavenly kingdom and his earthly kingdom, the physical and the spiritual, into one thing. But right now, in Revelation 4, John is getting a foretaste of that reality. He's getting a glimpse of eternal reality of heaven. And this is what he sees. Now, just like Neo this morning, we are going to get a revelation and a choice. First, let's take a look at the revelation. Look at chapter, two, or chapter 4, verse 2b. Or we'll just start at 2. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne room... A throne, I'm sorry, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. Pause. At the center of all things, if you could drill down into the heart of the universe, if you could get, get to the center of all things, that everything is orbiting around, it's holding all things together, at the center is a throne and one sitting on the throne. At the center of all things spiritual, spiritual and physical is a throne and on that throne is God. Look at verse three. And he who sat there, I love this part, had the appearance of jasper and carnelian and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Now listen, we get caught up and trying to take all of this kind of like very literal myself included. This week I was like Googling Jasper and Carnelian and there are all these multicolored rocks and then you've got a rainbow that looks like an emerald. And I'm like, what would that look like? I'm like, mm, I, I would probably be better off just tell that to my kids and have them draw it. What he's saying here, see, John is literally struggling to find physical depictions of the spiritual reality of God. He's at the end of his leash of language. He, he doesn't know how to describe what he's seeing. So all he can say is, every jewel I know, it's better than that. It's like a rainbow of rainbows with jewels on it, right? The point is that God is more beautiful, more majestic than any array of costly jewels. He is arrayed in splendor. He is powerful. Look at, look at verse four or verse five. No, I'm gonna go back to, sorry. No, verse five. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne was it, were a sea of glass like crystal. God is simultaneously beautiful and terrifying. At the center of the universe is God. He alone is holy. He alone is almighty. He alone is the great I am who was and is and is to come. He is the uncreated creator of all things, spiritual and physical. And he sits on his throne at the center of everything. God is the very heart of the universe. He is in absolute control. He is the point of everything. reason you need to come to church every single week is because we need to be reminded of that fact. We are not the center of the universe. We often think we are. We often live like we are. We all know our kids want to be and expect us to treat them like they are. But at the center of the universe, it's not us. 
nor is it blind chance, nor is it a series of random accidents. God is the only one powerful enough to hold everything together. So here's my question for us this morning. Is God, so that's, that's ultimate reality. God's the center of the universe. He's the center of everything. But your personal reality may be much different. Is God the center of your life? Or have you pushed him off to the periphery? Oh, what does it mean to be the center? Does he inform all of your choices? Or do you simply ask him to bless your desires? Do you seek out his opinion before you make decisions on who to date or how to raise your children or how to spend your money or your free time? Or do you just live the life you want to live and ask for his blessing on top of that? See, here's the issue. Everything is meant to orbit around God. If he isn't primary in your life, then your life is going to begin to fall apart. You might not even recognize it until 30 years down the line and you're going, you're looking back over your life and you say, that's where I went off. See, your soul is so large, it's so expansive, it's, it's almost like a black hole and nothing can fill it, nothing can satisfy your desires except for God himself. But he doesn't come into your story as an extra. He has to take center stage. He has to be the one your life orbits Around. If not, I can promise you, your life is already falling apart and you might not even be aware of it. So here's the revelation this morning. God is right now sitting on the throne of the universe, ruling and reigning in power. He is fulfilling his plan and making sure that everything, every single thing happens according to his plan. Nothing can thwart it. Nothing can slow it down. Nothing can send it off track. And because of who God is, everything else in this scene in chapter four is doing what? Everything else in this scene is doing what? Everything else is worshiping him. That's why creation exists. That's why we exist. This is what we were made for. We were made to behold and worship God. Look at verse four. Around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. Now listen, this is kind of trippy. This is God's new counsel. This is God's heavenly counsel that we saw in Psalm 82 as spirits before. Now look who it's made up of. It's 24 elders sitting on 24 thrones. Most likely, this is the leaders of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles and represents all of God's redeemed people. That's why they're human beings and they're clothed in white robes, symbolizing the righteousness of Christ, symbolizing they've been made pure and they've been right because of the work of the gospel. And they're all wearing crowns. Remember when Paul says in 1 Corinthians, don't you know that you're going to judge angels? We all read that and we're like, no, I didn't know that. It seems that redeemed humanity in heaven has an elevated status compared to angels. Then you've got these, let's keep reading because this part gets real trippy. Let's go to verse six. And before the throne, there were as a sea of glass like crystal and around the throne, on each side of the throne are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature, so this is literally spiritual animals, okay? 
with the face of a man and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them had six wings, are full of eyes all around and within. Now listen, we can all get caught up in the details of these crazy spiritual things or we can see the forest. And the forest is these freaky things. What are they doing? This is what they're doing. And day and night, they never cease to say, holy, holy, Holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. See, these crazy living spiritual creatures, what are they doing? They are worshiping God. And it seems like these creatures are some kind of holy hype men, right? They're like holy cheerleaders or something because every time they go off and they sing their praises and their worship of God, the 24 elders respond with their own worship. Look at verse nine. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders, look, fall down before him who is seated on the throne. That's what humanity does. And worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, look, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. From this, we see at least three aspects of worship. One, you vocalize what you worship, Two, you bow down before what you worship. And three, you cast your crowns before what you worship. First, let's look at these, everybody's vocalizing here. Verse eight, you've got the, the spiritual creatures saying, holy, holy, holy is Lord God Almighty. Verse 11, you've got the elders saying, worthy are you, O Lord. See, worship usually begins with vocalization. We talk about that which we find valuable. We were created to express our worship verbally. Can I ask you this morning, what do you want to talk about all the time? What makes you want to sing? See, the more you talk about God and the more you meditate on who he is and the more you sing songs with good theology in it and it gives you a good imagination of what God is and what God is doing right now, the more expressive your worship will be. The more passionate your worship will be. Secondly, you got these folks bowing down before God. What is that? Well, you know that. We, we don't really bow. Other cultures do it. Cultures of honor, they bow before one another. If you, if you ever see, you know, old movies or read books, you know, of the, the kings and knights, you'd have a, a knight bowing before the king. See, bowing is a posture of submission. It's swearing allegiance. It's surrendering control of your life. It's a humbling of ourselves. Worship is expressive, it's verbal, but then worship requires a submission. You submit yourself to that which you worship. Here we have the elders submitting themselves, bowing before God, saying, whatever you want to do with my life, do it. Whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. I'll give you everything because look who you are. I don't argue with lightning. I bow before it. Third, you have the kings or, or these elders casting their crowns before him. God gives us everything we have. Listen, our mind, our heart, our soul, our strength, all of these are given to us as crowns, currency meant to be poured out on that which matters most, God himself. What an absolute shame to give your all 
to give the majority of your mind, your thought life, your heart, your emotions, your passion, your soul, who you are at the core of your being, and your strength to something other than God. But we do it all the time, don't we? Now, why? Why do we do it all the time? To put it simply, something or someone other than God is sitting on the throne of our universe. What is at its center? Can I ask you that this morning? Can you evaluate? Can you look in and say, what is my life revolving around? See, everyone finds someone or something central to their happiness. And whatever that thing is, that is your God. It doesn't really matter who you say is your God. It doesn't really matter that you go to church occasionally or you read your Bible occasionally. Whatever your life orbits around, by definition, that thing is your God. Everyone finds someone or something supremely valuable and then they daydream about that thing. Their imaginations are captured by their thing. Their heart, their love is captured by that thing. Then... Because we're made in the image of God, we worship that thing. We begin to make sacrifices for it. We sing about it and we chant about it. And ultimately, their life begins to revolve around that thing, whatever it is. And that thing is what they are worshiping. Now listen, this is the default setting of our hearts. May start out with a little, probably a light example, a little light example. I could use very, I could make this very pointed and personal if I want to. We'll just see how it goes. Think about this. The college football fan. All week long, his imagination is captured by his team. He studies the object of his adoration. He reads about it. He tweets about it. He studies the statistics. He talks about it. He annoys his friends. He annoys his family. He annoys his people. Then on Saturday, he spends a great deal of time and effort to actually get in the presence of the object of his adoration. When the object of his adoration is actually presented to his senses, his whole posture changes. He praises them, he shouts, he lifts up, he's standing in front of the TV, or he, as I've witnessed the most meek of men, beat their chest and shout and scream and chant. Look at others and say, in your face! And paint their chest in sub-zero temperatures. And then you get him in the presence of God. Somebody raises their hand, they're like, look at that weirdo. Look at that guy. You had a shirt off with a beach painted on your chest yesterday. What are you talking about? That's a weirdo. What is that? What's going on? You take this college football fan to his favorite stadium. It's like Mecca. It's going into the largest temple in Iowa, Kinnick Stadium. You get him in there, what's he doing? He's worshiping. I don't care, $12 hot dog, do it. Don't matter to me. Money is nothing. I'm in the presence of my God. Nothing, money is nothing, right? Throwing it out. Buying gear, head to toe, black and gold, whatever you want me to do. What do you want me to do? What am I supposed to do? Oh, do this? Okay, I'll do this. Oh, who are we going to do? Right? All the chants, all the stuff. If a first century Greek showed up at our football games, they would know exactly what to do. Oh, what, what God is it? Who is it? Is it Zeus? Is it Zeus? Oh, it's Herky. Okay, Herky. <laughs> I worship you. It's pagan. Now listen, I, mean, I could get into it. That's what I'm saying. I wasn't planning to go that way. That's a funny one a bit. Listen, David Foster Wallace was one of the leading novelists in America. He was very well educated. Uh, he was well known. He was a postmodern author and critic and was, quote, not religious. In fact, he was raised by two college professors in Illinois who were atheists. And Wallace wrote a couple of very famous novels. And then 
at the peak of his fame, at the peak of his career, he gave this commencement address at Kenyon College. You can listen to the entire speech online, but here's a quote. I think I put it up there. In the day-to-day trenches of adult life, there is actually no such thing as atheism. There is no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. And an outstanding reason for choosing some sort of God or spiritual type thing to worship, be it JC or Allah or Yahweh or the wicked mother goddess or the four noble truths or some infrangible set of ethical principles is that pretty much anything else you worship will eat you alive. If you worship money and things, if they are where you tap real meaning in life, then you will never have enough. Never feel you have enough. It's the truth. Worship your own body and beauty and sexual allure and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million deaths before they finally plant you. Indeed, every wrinkle will be a death. You worship power, you will feel weak and afraid and you will need ever more power over others to keep the fear at bay. Worship your intellect as being seen as smart. You will end up feeling stupid, a fraud, always on the verge of being found out and so on. Look, the insidious thing about these forms of worship is not that they're evil or sinful. We would disagree. It is that they are unconscious. They are default settings. Sadly, David Foster Wallace didn't heed his own advice. We don't know for sure what he worshiped, be it his wit, his intellect, or his writing prowess, but in the end, it failed him. It didn't save him and hold him in his weakest moments, and he committed suicide in the prime of his life. See, Wallace says, everybody worships. There is no such thing as not worshiping. The only choice we have is what to worship. For many of us, that takes us as a surprise, doesn't it? We think worship is what we do here on Sunday. We don't think it has very much to do with our everyday normal life, but that's where we're wrong. The word worship comes from the root word worthy. We see it in verse 11. Worthy are you. Worthy are you. It's really, worship is really worth-ship. It's finding someone or something supremely valuable, worth everything. Jesus shows this perfect example. I think it's in Matthew chapter 11. It's off the top of my head right now, so I'm not sure, where he says this guy is, basically this guy walks by this field his whole life. He looks at this field. He's like, what a dump. What a waste of money. And then one day while he's walking past this field, imagine you walk past, it's got a for sale sign in this vacant lot, $100,000. You're like, what a dump. What moron would spend $100,000 on this lot? And then one day he decides to take a shortcut and he cuts through it and he sees something just breaking through the surface. And he kicks his foot and, oh, there's something buried there. And he digs down and he opens it up and he looks and it's this buried treasure. It's ultimately valuable. And he looks around and he puts it back on and he bears it. And then he goes to the bank and the bank says, it's $100,000. like, no problem. $100,000. Absolutely. I'm getting a deal. Why? This, his perception has changed. He got new information. He realized something he thought was no longer valuable is now supremely valuable. And the price tag of $100,000 is nothing compared to what's buried in the field. Now, this is the reality of worship. We all live our lives on this cost-benefit analysis, right? We're always measuring, is, is it worth it to spend my time there? Is it worth it to give my money there? And the reality of worship is when you find God supremely valuable, it changes everything else in your life. It changes how you spend your time. It changes how you spend your money. It changes how you structure everything about your life because you found the heart of the universe. You found the the treasure above all treasures. 
And if your life hasn't changed very much once you met God, then you either haven't met him or you haven't really thought about it very much. It hasn't sunk down in your soul. See, I, I use the example of football. I could use anything. Football sounds, it, it, we laugh, it sounds harmless, right? But when you think about it through the grid of worship, through the grid of worthiness, to spend more of your time thinking about football than God, to spend more of your money on team merchandise or travel or tickets than you do on advancing God's kingdom. That's not harmless at all. That's spiritual embezzlement. God has given you your heart. God has given you your mind. God has given you your time, your talent, your treasure. God has given you these things to be used as worship to the ultimate reality. That's him. When you say, no, no, I've got this. I'm going to use it on my own stuff. And you shortchange God. That's spiritual embezzlement. The question for us this morning is not, do you worship? Everybody worships. Everybody bows to something. You're, nobody in here is free. We're all in control. And we're being controlled by whatever we worship. If you worship the approval of the opposite sex, they control you. One text can change your life crush you or exalt you. They say, get over here right now. I need you. Boom, you're gone. You're not free. You're being controlled by that which you worship because you've bowed your life to the worship of the opposite sex. Money, power, whatever it is. God is the only one that if you bow to him, he's gracious towards you. He's merciful towards you. He's kind towards you. So what, what is sitting on the throne of your universe? What moves you to tears? What fills you with joy? What or who do you go to when you're feeling down, lonely, or discouraged? Is it God or is it something else? If it's anything else, your kids, your family, sex, power, influence, it will ultimately destroy you. In fact, it's already destroying you. You just don't know it yet. So here it is. Everything in heaven is worshiping God. They are enjoying him and giving him glory. And in their worship of God, hear, hear this. They are totally and completely happy. Please see this. This is not some kind of obligatory, like bending, breaking your arm behind your back and saying, worship God or else. If you find God supremely valuable, you will worship him. You will. Now, if you don't find him supremely valuable, that's why you're here this morning and you can say, I don't find you valuable. Help me. Help me see clearly. Free my heart from lesser loves. Free me from other addictions, other things that are pulling me away from you. God, be the center of my reality. Here, these people are not like, duh, I got to fall down again. Right? But it's about to snow. Hey, I'm not yelling at any of you guys because I am glad that you're here this morning. Because last night I was like, really, God? 12 inches on a Sunday? Come on. Nobody's going to show up, right? Nothing else matters when he, he is in their vision. They are completely and totally fulfilled in this moment, happy in this moment. They found that which their heart longs for. This is why the Westminster Confession of Faith says that our purpose is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. That is the end for which we were made. That is where our deepest happiness is found. But here's the deal. If you don't worship God, if you push him to the side, if he's off center of your life and you center your life on something else, your life will begin to fall apart. So this, this is where we're at this morning. We have a revelation and a choice. The revelation is God is on the throne. 
He is sitting at the center of the universe and is in himself supremely valuable. The choice is, will you worship him for the rest of your life? You were made for intimacy with the infinite. Will you give yourself to him today? We're now going to take part in the Lord's Supper. And one of the things that the Lord's Supper reminds us of, and we do it every week, is because here, here, here's, that's where I ended the sermon. Look, I, I want you, all of us, to give ourselves to God. But hear me. This is a response. This table is evidence that God has already given himself to us. Christ has already came. He's already lived a perfect life that you didn't live, that I don't live. He's already died the death that we deserve for our many sins in our place. He's already secured a place for the believer in heaven that no matter what's going on in our life right now, we're going to wind up in the throne room. We're going to wind up there in the presence of the living God and we're going to be able to fall at his feet and go, finally, I have what my heart was made for. And we did that. We get to do that, not because we give ourselves to God, but because God gave himself to us in Christ. So yeah, I want you to give yourself to God, but I want you to do it, not to earn acceptance, not to make your way to heaven, but as a response that God's already given himself to us in Christ. So as you come this morning, think about your lack of giving yourself to God, how, how feeble, how weak, half-hearted you give yourself to God, and then look and remind, remind yourself how fully Christ gave himself for you, how fully the prime of his life he gave himself for you. Father, we are half-hearted creatures messing around with food and drink, temporary desires. We're like children playing in a mud puddle when you would desire to take us to the beach and experience the joy of the ocean. We are so half-hearted. Our desires are so weak, so limp, so flimsy compared to the desires you want us to have for you. And I pray that this morning as we come and we confess our sins and we repent, and we get a vision, a revelation of who you are and you put your broken body, the body of your son into our hands once again, we would be overwhelmed and we would live lives of worship as we leave here today. I pray that you would do this for your glory and our joy in Jesus' name. Amen.